0: Hello, I'm Beth Liston. I'm an Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at The Ohio State University. I have an M.D. and a Ph.D., and I'm the Director of Research and Scholarship in the Division of Hospital Medicine here at OSU.
1: My name is Dr. Vijay Degarola, and I am the Associate Director of Integration at the College of Medicine and the Associate Medical Director at Select Specialty Hospital.
2: And I'm Dr. James Knight. I'm our Division Director of Medical Informatics and Hospital Medicine at Ohio State. Um, and uh, we're here today to do a podcast.
0: I thought you were gonna talk about your donut.
2: Oh, so fun fact about me is <laughs> I like donuts a lot. I'm kind of a donut snob and I consider Columbus to be sort of a dead zone for donuts. What is your favorite donut place? I really don't have a favorite donut
0: place here in Columbus. Have you tried the fat Cronuts? No. Oh. I've never heard of this. But I actually don't like donuts, so I don't know that I would. I don't like donuts either. So We are not going to be talking about donuts, although we may interject different fun facts about ourselves and potentially Columbus um, while we do this. We are coming together to talk to you about evidence in hospital medicine. Um,
2: Opinions in this podcast uh, are not meant to represent those of our employer.
0: Our goal is to review and discuss current literature important to hospitals like us. Um, Today is November 8th. 2016 election day, and we're going to be talking about a recent article that was published in Journal of Hospital Medicine this past May Culture of Spikes Indications and Yield of Blood Cultures in Hospitalized Medical Patients. The first author is Katherine Lindsay from the VA Boston Healthcare System at the BU School of Medicine. And I really love this topic. Um, I feel pretty strongly that we as hospitalists, unfortunately, do have a tendency to overdo this. We order many more cultures. Um, then probably we need, which obviously has a potential harm associated with them. Um, and so I'm excited about talking about this article. I really would like to delve into this concept and see where we can go with it. Thoughts?
2: Well, certainly it's a common uh, call that I get. I think I, I interact with this topic in two different ways. One during the day when I'm taking care of my hospitalized inpatients, and I get or I, and I notice a fever, or get called with a fever, and I have to figure out how what to do in a patient that I know well. Uh, And then uh, in the middle of the night when I get called about a patient I don't know as much about uh, other than a quick electronic chart review. uh, And so, you know, guidance with those two patient populations is is what I was hoping to get out of
1: this article. And I'm excited for this article, being the closest out of residency uh, with our pairings here, noticing that many times the to-do list always says, if fever, please get blood cultures, chest x-ray, and urine analysis and start on empiric antibiotics. So I'm glad to see um, some literature out there in terms of our hospitalized patients to try to get a better idea of, should we be doing this? My sign-out doesn't say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, many do, and actually the article brings that up in their introduction, that a large percentage, and they actually quote that up to 75% of written handovers or sign-offs have culture if spikes written, Um, and also that inspires the title of the paper, I think. So it's certainly an area that we really should be looking at, Um, and this article overall is not inconsistent with sort of a recent and growing body of clinical literature, but most of that literature was done in the ER setting, looking at initial blood cultures um, when patients first present, and there's not a lot that's been in the inpatient setting um, other than maybe looking at bacteremia with specific diagnoses. This study, however, was a prospective cohort study of all blood cultures that were ordered during a seven-month period um, to October 1st, 2014, through April 15th, 2015, at a large VA teaching hospital. Um, all blood culture orders were reviewed for indication and result each day, and patients were included in this study if they were on the medicine or cardiology wards, which really actually included all of the medicine diagnoses. There weren't sp- subspecialty teams at this facility. Um, Now, aside from the fact that it's a single site and it's a VA, it feels to me um, like the patients we really see in the hospital. These are the people that we want to be looking at the utility of blood cultures for. Um, The authors looked at each blood culture order and result, and then they classified the positive blood cultures into true and false positives by consensus among the microbiology and infectious disease departments after reviewing the clinical and laboratory data. A total of 576 blood culture orders or 467 blood cultures episodes um, were completed on 363 medical patients during the study period, and most of them were drawn in the first two days of admission, about 57%, um, and then 25% were drawn from day three to seven, and almost 20% were drawn after hospital day seven. The authors then looked at predictors of true bacteremia. Um, They wanted to see if they could figure out which patients were likely to have true positives. Um, One of the predictors they looked at was the indication that the physician chose when ordering the blood culture, and the other was the working diagnosis for the patient. And they actually went and looked through the charts and decided what that was based on the assessment and plan rather than the initial diagnosis. And I I like this approach in general, as I think they chose some quick and maybe easy practical parameters. Although I was... Um, Would have been interested in some other variables, and I was was somewhat surprised that they narrowed it to just those indications rather than things like vitals um, or maybe other criteria that groups look at to determine what the likelihood of bacteremia is in the ER setting. Thoughts on the methods?
2: Um, Well, you know, I think your point about vital signs is certainly an interesting one. I... I a lot of times when you're designing a study like this you have to deal with the system you're in and I I um I haven't worked in the VA uh system in some years and perhaps there was a limitation with their ability to extract vital signs to go with uh, what was going on or or uh...
0: But you know it was a prospective study. Yeah. They you know they were looking at the charts. I feel I find it hard to believe they couldn't just go in and get that information too. So
2: But there's a big difference between automating the retrieval of the information versus having some schmuck to go look at 500-some patients' vital signs.
0: Yeah, sure. And then uh, the vital signs at what point? That might have made it more complicated. You take it, I guess, at the time of the blood culture. But I agree, could add complexity.
1: So I thought the method designs were um, pretty unique in comparison to the previous trials that were also done in the past before. Um, the population, though, is actually what kind of popped out most to me. Um, Again, coming from a VA in the Boston area, um, about 95% of the population was male, and about 85% of the population is Caucasian. Um, We all practice in a completely different demographic um, in comparison uh, here in our hospital. So I think that um, some of the information that we collected from the methods itself might be a little bit more difficult to extrapolate.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the inpatients and the context and diagnoses fit... Population is a little harder. I'm not sure that VA patients would be different, or you know, men versus women. But you have to assume there may be
2: prevalence of UTI, and then by extension, urosepsis and bacteremia. and Female sure. patients is certainly, I would assume, going to be more common
0: in female patients versus our seventy-something-year-old veterans. I don't know. I'd have to I have to go back to that data. I'm not sure. I don't know either, but I'm suspicious. <laughs> All right. I agree. Reason to be suspicious when we apply this article. And, and I would have liked, like, the ER looks at the Shapiro criteria when they're deciding on blood cultures, which include vitals um, and a number of lab values. Um, and, and although that isn't necessarily a great a great measure um, so far, people are still looking at it, I think they had a little bit of a missed opportunity here to get additional data, given that they've done this sort of prospective study that we're excited about. Um, so as far as results, the true positives and false positive um, rates per blood co- cultures were actually pretty similar. So the true positives were 3.6% and the false positives were 2.3%. Um, and... This was actually significantly lower than those drawn in the emergency room patients during the study period. So the ER patients, when they came in, they, overall their blood cultures were 7.2%, which is actually a little bit more consistent with sort of the national data on how frequently patients with fever presenting have bacteremia. And I'm not that surprised because it's somewhat driven by the ER data. And you're smiling over there, so <laughs> tell, tell me what that smile is about.
2: I'm sure there are many challenges in the ER to drawing blood cultures in that environment.
0: Okay. Which is an interesting point, right? If you are drawing it off an IV or in a setting that maybe is less um, ideal, then maybe you have more positives. Um, the most common working diagnoses that prompted a blood culture order were pneumonia, bacteremia it, slash endocarditis UTI, and then a non-infectious etiology, something like syncope. So they classed those all together. And then of those, the only primary primary diagnosis that was predictive of a true positive culture was bacteremia slash endocarditis, which is really not a surprise. Um, And the likelihood ratio they calculated was 3.7, so that these patients were more likely to have a true positive blood culture. A diagnosis of pneumonia had no true positives and four false positives, and a non-infectious diagnosis only had one true positive and five false positives, so that the likelihood ratios of getting a true positive for these diagnoses um, were 0.1 and 0.3 respectively. And then as far as clinical indications that were chosen by the clinician. The most common was fever alone, um, followed by fever with an additional indication, follow-up blood cultures, fever and leukocytosis, and then leukocytosis alone. Um, And only follow-up positive blood cultures was predictive of a true positive with a likelihood ratio of 3.4.
2: And that was in their EHR while they were ordering the blood culture, right? They picked which ones applied, and they could choose one or more than one.
0: Yes. Yeah. These are the clinicians when they ordered it, they, their EHR was set up such that they had to actually put something down. Um, and the paper doesn't actually specify what they could choose from, which I actually wish it did. Cause I wanted to know if there were other things that, um, weren't being chosen because I thought that would be interesting. But I, what I think the meat of this article is actually table three though, which is where I get really excited. Um, because I think they took all these likelihood ratios for all the specific indications and diagnoses. Um, such that you can really kind of easily take a look. So, for example, a patient with recent antibiotic exposure, and they define that as 72 hours prior to blood cultures being drawn, has a likelihood ratio of 0.4 um, of having a true positive blood culture. So if you say that you expect um, 3% of the, or 3.6% to have true positives, you multiply that 0.4, that's your pre-test probability in that patient population. Um, and on the other hand, a, a patient without recent antibiotics but with a fever and leukocytosis, had a likelihood ratio of five point six. So that patient, I would take the three point six percent and multiply it by five point six, and you know, I'm getting a pretty high likelihood of having a true positive for bacteremia. For bacteremia. So this is the the table I go to and think it really kind of summarizes the cool things about the article.
1: So my eyes were actually drawn to table two because I I enjoyed the choosing YZ plane and then also. I wish that this article would have gone a little bit further and uh, talked a little bit more about, you know, what about the false positives that, that came up Ooh. from all of these blood cultures and, and the harm that was caused? Um, fever, it looked like, you know, out of 136 patients, out of 136 blood cultures that were drawn, three of them were false and three of them were a true positive. So therefore, there was just simply a one to one true positive to false positive ratio. When we looked a little bit, when I looked a little bit closer, and when, it, when we talk about fever, it's anything over 101, which they use in the article, but their leukocytosis cutoff was actually 10,000. When we start thinking about sepsis or SERS criteria, the leukocytosis count we use is actually 12,000. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of looking a little bit further, but unfortunately, they didn't go and count leukopenia as being another, as another possibility, um, as another um, pulldown at this point. Looking at table two before I jump to table three from the working diagnosis, I just was maybe surprised that there were so many blood cultures that were being drawn for pneumonia without sepsis or SIRS criteria being met. And that's me making an assumption based on there isn't fever and leukocytosis to account for 101 of these patients, Mm -hmm. but there are about 50. So about half of them, I'm going to assume, came in with pneumonia and possible sepsis and zero of them had a true positive.
0: Yeah. And you, again, it goes back to, we don't have the vital signs, so it's hard to say for sure. Yeah. And another, it's sort of a missed opportunity. I, was, I hadn't thought through the white blood cell count as much as you'd had, but I, I agree. I did note that that was actually pretty low, that the leukocytosis was sort of a low um, cutoff
1: there. And I wonder if it's actually due to their institution, if 10,000 is their institutional cutoff before they start to flag it as being leukocytosis versus our institution. When I went back and looked, ours is about 11,000. Mm-hmm. Before we start to have a flag, or it can drop all the way down to anything less than five.
0: And most studies actually that look at fever do specifically exclude patients that are immunocompromised. And they don't actually mention that. Um, they do have the comorbidities, right, and their initial patient characteristics, um, which include, you know, diabetes. They do have patients there with malignancy, which a lot of other studies do exclude. Um, and you're right, they don't talk about neutropenia, and that's not an exclusion. So, you know, if anything, I guess that would make the the patient population potentially more sick than what we're otherwise seeing, because those are included in this. Um,
1: yeah. But I do enjoy table number three. Um, I think as educators and also as clinicians, this provides us a, a framework to actually teach the upcoming residents, interns, and students as to about likelihood ratios, and what is the likelihood. And just like Beth had gone over... When we multiply 5.6 likelihood ratio with the initial start of 3.6, we're going to get somewhere around 17, I believe. A 17% likelihood ratio that this blood culture would be positive, um, increasing the chance there. Um, The follow-up previous positive blood culture, I think, is associated with the most true positive there, just as Beth had been speaking. But I was quite amazed that fever and leukocytosis, again, has a one-to-one ratio in terms of likelihood ratio for a true positive or a false positive.
0: And some of that might be this antibiotic exposure, right? Most of the patients had exposure to antibiotics. And so that's really a big sort of um, decision tree, decision point, is if they've they've been exposed to recent antibiotics, there's significantly less likely... Um, except for perhaps in that case where you're following up blood cultures, because that was a lot of the patients that they saw.
2: Yeah, and a hair over
0: 60% had received antibiotics within 72 hours. Yeah, but I, you know, interestingly, some of them had, you know, Sinkybee as the diagnosis, so hopefully <laughs> like they were not the ones receiving antibiotics. That's my assumption. <laughs> but. Yeah, I like this. It was a single institutional study and it was focused on, you know, one patient population. But I am going to think about this when I'm called at night. And I've known the data be- that, you know, really, we probably order too many blood cultures. And, you know, there was that JAMA article in 2012 that sort of went through it. But I also know a lot of it were was in the ER setting. And it's harder to say, okay, a patient who's been here, you know, two or three days, how do we address that? And I might... Still feel like probably I shouldn't order the blood culture, but this helps me feel more comfortable having something concrete in front of me for inpatients that I can write in my note and say why or, you know, tell the person that I'm signing off to what my thought process was and not feel uncomfortable about it.
1: And I think some of that ED data that Beth had discussed before, including that Shapiro criteria, is their major criteria was a temperature over 103 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. So if someone has 103 degrees Fahrenheit, the likelihood ratio, I think even just as clinicians, is, is we would think that that would most likely yield a positive culture or, a, or an infection, a rip-roaring infection somewhere.
0: Yeah. Although what the funny thing is, even with that criteria, it's still not doing a great job, right? It's sensitive, 70%. but not specific. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a lot of data that says we actually do a very bad job of deciding, right? Or are we only like 8% of the time right on... Um, whether a patient has bacteremia or not, I think are one of the studies that was referenced in in that JAMA article. So um, I I think when it's obvious, everyone says, okay, severe sepsis, they're hypotensive, febrile, tachycardic, and decompensating. That's pretty clear. Maybe we get it then. Nice to have more information.
2: I I think for me, I think the... the the follow-up previous positive is almost a throwaway line because that's lumped in with people whose bacteremia you're trying to clear. If you're uh, if they've got if you're concerned they've got an endovascular infection, for example. Um, that's all going to kind of be in that in that group. I, I think it, it's almost sort of an internal control, uh, if anything, um, that you would expect some of those patients to be positive, and uh, and so ha- knowing that you have a likelihood ratio there, I think, is adds some validity to the other results.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, right? Because if those were negative, then I I worry about the study <laughs> to some extent. Um, but it also is like uh, exciting to me to say, or interesting to me to say. Well, what is the utility, even if we find a positive culture, right? In those patients, you can point to one potentially. We're looking to see how long the course of antibiotics is. Have we chosen the appropriate antibiotics? But the other is, I'm I'm not sure, right? In a urinary tract infection, does the blood culture being positive change our management? Now, maybe in a staph infection, right? Staph aureus, it probably it's going to, but if it's just E. coli, what's
2: well, going to increase the cost? Yeah, I mean, some clinicians are going to be comfortable taking. Uh, a positive blood culture uh, in the setting of UTI and treating that with, with targeted antibiotic therapy and transitioning to oral medication and sending that patient home promptly. Some patients are going to get an infectious disease consult. There's going to be increased length of stay. Who knows how many sets of follow-up cultures they're going to want to be negative before they're comfortable transitioning to oral antibiotics or sending that patient home. Um, so
0: I think there's a lot of potential additional cost in that, in that subset. Mm-hmm. Which speaks back to sort of that harm. Like right. getting that positive blood culture, did it affect outcome? Um, and in a positive way. Right. Um, rather than getting additional antibiotic exposure, length of stay, and, you know, additional consultants. The article does actually mention it, um, of, of the patients that they have, not in terms of the harm, but of the patients that they found to be bacteremic, only one of them. They determined was likely to have a dish, um, a change in clinical course as a result of that information. So one of the patients had a culture that provided additional information that changed their approach. So and I don't they didn't specify what that was or how it changed it. But, I and
1: think, that, I think another subset of patients that they actually did review here in this study included the neutro patients that they were worried about neutropenic fever and in sepsis. And similar to what we see very often is that we don't find any positive source in neutropenic fever. We treat it, but we never have positive cultures. And in sepsis, most of us expect a gram negative to grow. And out of the 27 cultures that they performed in, in these types of patients, zero return back positive. Now, zero return back positive for false positive and zero return back positive for um, true positive as well. So in both of those patients demographics, neutropenic, when, when the physician was worried about neutropenic fever or they were worried about sepsis, I thought it was very interesting that not a culture returned back positive. And I think that kind of correlates with what we often see, mm-hmm. um, you know, as physicians is the patient might've been started on antibiotics on appropriate treatment and the cultures were drawn post because maybe they were a hard stick down in the emergency room department or they were difficult because they don't have a metaport, et cetera. And these patients, when they arrive to the floor. We call an access team, they collect the blood cultures, and that gets sent post-antibiotics. And unfortunately, you know, like many other studies have shown, nothing grows. So we treat these patients empirically for five days, seven days, sometimes ten.
0: Yeah. That's a tougher patient population because certainly there's lots of reasons for them to have fever, but there's lots of reasons to worry about fever too. So I'm not sure why that would be. You'd expect maybe at least that first one to be positive, but not always, right? Lots of yes. lots of maybe disease-related fevers and inflammatory response-related fevers. And I'm
1: glad that they actually excluded those types of patients from the likelihood ratios, um, which I thought was helpful because that kind of convoluted some of the data when I was looking at just the raw data. Mm-hmm. And then when I tried to look at the likelihood ratios, I was hoping that they would break that down and they were kind kind enough to um, hide that in terms of the article and I think they might have done that on purpose just because there might not have been a true with absolutely zero cultures return the likelihood ratio would be zero right and i and i don't think they want anybody to to extrapolate on that information at this point sure so I do think that it would be interesting to talk
0: more about cost. And there's a couple of articles in pediatric hospital medicine that have been talking about sort of the costs of extra blood cultures. And there was a recent article that came out in Journal of Pediatrics that looked at a targeted versus broad approach in community-acquired pneumonia. Um, And they found that using a targeted approach for community-acquired pneumonia could save um, almost $6 million annually on just that focused intervention. So, And that doesn't include the, um, you know, maybe complexity and other harms that both cost money and, you know, patient safety or morbidity related to the patient. So interesting information to start looking at in hospital medicine. So any last thoughts on our, on our article today?
2: Um, so, you know, for me, I think a a couple things, reading this article reminded me that I need to be cognizant of, uh, Choosing wisely and uh, reminded me that that even routine phone calls in the middle of the night about a fever are going to have significant downstream effects for that patient depending on the decision that I make. Uh, and in fact, after reading this article, I recently was uh, on call at night and actually chose not to culture somebody, um, uh, and I did, you know, a little bit of a, uh, a deep dive, and they didn't didn't meet any criteria that would give them significant likelihood, uh, and uh, so I just didn't culture them, and hopefully that was the right choice for that patient, but certainly um, has affected my clinical practice, at least in that I'm thinking about
1: this topic uh, when it comes up. So I enjoyed this article as well. I think that uh, overall, in terms of utility and, and ability to add to our practice, it, it does provide a, a small framework in terms of, number one, it gets us thinking, should we be doing cultures? Number two, this, along with a lot of other data that was published previously, makes us start to think, is it really required for pneumonias? Is it really required for skin and soft tissue infections? And is, do we... I think the
2: literature is very clear that it is not required for skin and soft tissue. And infections. do we need? Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and,
1: and do we need blood cultures um, for patients who have urinary tract infections? I think it, this brings up the thought process again. Now, um, in terms of extrapolating it, how can I apply this to our practice? We have a lot more IV drug use in our area. than than what's actually shown in this article. Um, Only about 4% of the patients were noted to have IVD or IV drug use. And I think that that is a a very high risk factor for bacteremia, especially when these patients come in with with fever of unclear etiology um, and other symptoms. So I think it just has to be placed with the demographics of the patients as well. And I hope that this triggers other institutions to consider repeating this similar style of a uh, prospective study. Now that um, most of us have EHRs, I think it'd be a little bit easier. Um, We might not all have our medical student who's able to dig into the data on a daily basis, but we'll still have to use the EHR, and hopefully we'll get a little bit more data in the coming years.
0: Yeah, in different patient populations. So I agree. I, I felt like I've known this information, but the culture to me has been so strong to get blood cultures that in the inpatient setting that I really like having this additional utility in an article that I think is really easy to read. Um, it's straightforward. It gives me concrete tables to point out with specific numbers that I can use to multiply um, um, the prevalence for pretest probability. So I, I think it's, it's a nice article to have. And Um, keeping your back pocket to talk to your residents from, knowing that there's a whole body of literature behind it as well, that this is not in isolation, it isn't a groundbreaking change, but helps me fight that cultural influence that I think I feel in hospital medicine. If you're going to rate it on a scale of one to five, five being the best paper that you've ever read, such that it's going to be... You know, framed in your office (laughs) as something given out to everyone you come into contact with, and one that you know, if anyone ever brings it up, you're going to throw it into the trash can immediately. So, two extremes, obviously, but on that scale, how would you rate this article?
1: So, I'd I'd probably give this article uh, a three at this point because number one, it's not a new and groundbreaking idea, Mm -hmm. but it does provide us likelihood ratios, and it re and it um, brings blood cultures back to the forefront. In terms of is this required, and, and I think it's at a perfect time uh, in our medical society when we're thinking about trying to choose wisely and and are we causing the patient more harm than good? James, I
2: really don't want to give it a number. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think it's I think it was a good article. It was a good read. Um, it uh, reminded me uh, to think about things uh, when I see a pretty common problem in my clinical care, which is fever uh, and, and the decision tree to, uh, to blood cultures. And, and so that, Im- that influence to me was, uh, was helpful. So I, I, I enjoyed it and uh, it's got some impact for me, but I refuse to give it a numeric <laughs> measure of its overall quality.
0: Or overall impact, impact? in your practice.
2: The hospital medicine impact
0: yes. <laughs> number. Yes, that's what we're looking mm-hmm. for. Because quality. I mean, we've talked about the quality, but we're not really looking at this from a let's go into the stats and methods and really get a you know be more focused that way. But is this something we're going to use and is it good enough? So, but you're still not going to give it a
1: number, are you? No. <laughs> All right. Yeah, hold out.
0: So I I'll give it a three and a half. Um, and I know we did one through five. We could have done one through ten through ten, and I could have.
1: Because didn't have to is do the, the half. Price is right.
0: <laughs> right, no, because I agree. I really, I, but I liked it a little bit more. I think if only because it's it's easy to read, It's relatively short, which gives it a practical value, mm-hmm. so that I can reference it easily, um, and I you know use those numbers to multiply. I I do agree that the patient population is a little hard to to generalize from, um, and I think that's definitely a weakness. Um, and it's not exactly novel, but it's something I like and will re- reference and use and um, probably quote in some notes at night when I'm called so that people feel more comfortable with that decision making um, and we can, you know, adjust that culture. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, that finishes our podcast on Culture If Spikes. If the authors of this article, Um, hear the podcast and would like to comment, comment, or contribute, um, we would be happy to do that and get their input as well. Thanks.